Welcome to On the Ballot with Ballotpedia, where we take a closer look at the top political stories of the day. Ballotpedia connects people to politics by providing neutral, nonpartisan, and reliable information on our government, how it works, and where it's headed. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for being with us. Today, I'm joined by Nathaniel Rakich, who's a senior editor and election analyst at 538. His writing has been widely published in places like The Atlantic and The Boston Globe, and his work at 538 has been regularly featured across the media landscape over the last few years. He also happens to be our last guest of 2023. Nathaniel, thanks for coming on the show. Hi, Victoria. Thanks for having me. So some of our listeners might not know that you're also a huge baseball fan. I mean, your Twitter handle is Base Ballot. So I'm going to throw you a softball to start off. Who's your favorite baseball team? <laughs> uh, well, it's complicated, actually. I grew up a big Red Sox fan because I grew in up in the Boston area. Um, but I've kind of grown out of that. Um, I've kind of gotten out of the idea that like you should root for a team like basically too thick and thin like um the red sox have uh, not been too good lately and in particular uh they traded mookie betts who was their best player a few years ago and um uh, basically i thought at that point like well like if the red sox aren't going to care about their fans like why should i care about them so since then i've been a little bit of an itinerant baseball fan um definitely more of a, a fan of the game overall than any specific team it's fun to kind of pick a, a team and root for them in the playoffs for example uh, the last couple of years i've been pulling for the phillies I, I briefly lived in philadelphia and enjoyed my time there um but uh, now i live in washington dc and you know the the nationals aren't very good but they're up and coming so uh, looking forward to getting to know a new team and, and rooting for some exciting young players I abide by that philosophy, too. My husband was a huge Cubs fan, and now we live in Dallas. So we're kind of Rangers fans now. We're pretty excited about the the World Series most recently. Bandwagon fans get a bad rap, but like, you know, like, no, like, you know, like you deserve as fans, we deserve like a team that like really like tries their hardest. And like, frankly, like I appreciate when a team like backs up the money truck like uh, they did with Shohei, the Dodgers did with Shohei Otani recently. Like, it, mm-hmm. like, it's really exciting. And like, that is a good reason to be a fan of a team. Whereas if your fan, if your team isn't doing much, like they're just not giving much to you. Like you deserve better fans. Exactly. <laughs> That's great. Well, let's take a look. Um, We're less than a year away from the presidential election now, and everyone in this political media world, as you and me, are preparing for the marathon of the election cycle. We've had a few pollsters on the show in the past few months, and each has kind of talked about how polling works and also which polls we can trust. Um, There's so much conflicting information out there about that. So after the 2022 midterms, you wrote that polls were historically accurate in 2022. So can you explain why you think that's the case? Yeah, um yeah. Well, to be perfectly honest, I think, you know, there was a degree of luck. Um, You know, obviously the polling industry is going through, um, you know, there are some challenging times, right? People, because of caller ID, like people aren't picking up the phone as often and, you know, like it's all the proliferation of cell phones and stuff. And, you know, almost all polls, basically all pollsters worth their weight now will call cell phones. But, you know, pollsters are experimenting with different methods like online and even text messages to see if they can get better response rates. Um, and really, it's quite impressive that polls have remained pretty accurate despite all the challenges that are facing the industry. Um, but yeah, just to put some numbers on it. So we kind of ran um, the numbers on how kind of the average error of polls in the 2022 election versus 
previous cycles. And the error is just like the difference between the margin of the election and the margin of the polls. Um, and on average in the 2022 cycle, um, races, the races that we analyzed, so like Senate, governor, house, um, had an average error of only 4.8 points, uh, which again is the most accurate since at least 1998, which was as far back as we did this exercise. Um, obviously there have been some high profile polling misses, uh, in recent years, particularly in presidential years in 2016, obviously, um, the polls indicated that Hillary Clinton was going to win. She didn't in 2020, um, the polls kind of quote unquote called the winner correctly in that it, they, you know, said that Joe Biden was was going to win, but the polls, as folks probably remember, showed that Biden was basically going to win in a landslide, and he ended up winning kind of by the skin of his teeth um, by some pretty narrow margins in some states. But overall, it, it's important to note that like the error really, there's no long-term trend of polls becoming less accurate over time, uh, the way that you might expect given all the challenges in the industry. And again, by virtue of the fact that in 2022, they were actually the most accurate they've been. Um, it shows that pollsters are very capable of adapting to these new environments and whatever they did in 2022 worked. That said, it doesn't necessarily mean that 2024 polls will be super accurate either. Um, there you know, are a lot of theories about why the polls uh, quote unquote missed in 2016 and 2020. Um, some of them focus on the idea that maybe there's something about supporters of Donald Trump in particular that are difficult to poll. Obviously, it looks like Donald Trump will probably be on the ballot again in 2024. So that could, um, you know, kind of uh, uh, mess some things up. Um, it could also just be like there could be other factors. So in 2016, there was a lot of talk about how pollsters weren't waiting by education and education has obviously become a big dividing line. Um, you know, for example, like, you know, like white people like who with college degrees vote very differently now uh, from white people without college degrees. Um, pollsters have generally adapted to that. A lot of pollsters are waiting by education now. In 2020, it could have just been factors due to the pandemic. Maybe Democrats were staying home more and they were more likely to answer polls. Um, and obviously, hopefully that won't be an issue in 2024. Um, so, you know, the polling basically in 2024 could be very good like it was in 2022. It could be more of a miss like it was in 2016, 2020. The overall important thing to note is just that polls aren't ever going to be 100% accurate, right? Even that number that I cited for 2022, 4.8 points on average error, um, you know, like a lot of races are within five points and that would mean that, you know, a race, a poll would quote unquote call an election wrong. But really like if a poll says so-and-so candidate is winning by two points, that's basically just tantamount to a tie. Like that's within the statistical margin of error and people should think about it that way. That's really interesting. So with that data set that you have as far as average error rates, was 2016 the highest in that going back to 1980, whatever? Actually, 1998 was the highest. Um, It had an average error of 7.7. But uh, this century, yes, 2016 was the highest. It had an average error of 6.8 points. Very interesting. Before we dig into some of your more latest work, you also penned a really nifty guide on how to read polls like a pro. Uh, the article listed 10 tips for knowing which polls to trust and how to make sense of them. We're not going to run through all of them, but could you give us some of the most important things to keep in mind heading into 2024? Yeah. So I think the, the the one thing that I always tell people is kind of what I already mentioned, which is that polls have this thing called margin of error. Like whenever you take a poll of only 500 people and you know say that it is representative of a broader population, like there's going to be uh, you can't, you can't, it's not possible, obviously, to pull all, you know, 10 million people in a state or whatever. And so we do sa- settle for these smaller sample sizes. And they do historically come quite close um, to an actual statewide result, provided that they're kind of weighted appropriately um, and, and conducted uh, um, professionally. Um, but there is always going to be this unavoidable amount of error. So when you see next to a poll, you know, yeah, again, like, 
Biden is leading Trump by two points, but this poll has a margin of error of three points. Think of it as basically a statistical tie. Um, so that basically means, so actually the margin of error, this is a little bit of a nerdy aside, but the margin of error applies to both candidates' vote share shares. So let's say that the poll had Biden at 50% and Trump at 48%, and the margin of error is three points. That means that Biden could be anywhere from 53% to 47%, and it means that Trump could be anywhere from 51% to 45%. And obviously there's an overlap there. Um, in which uh, Trump is actually leading Biden. Um, and so it's just important for people to think about polls as estimates rather than precise measures of, you know, down to the decimal point or whatever. Um, so that's one thing. Another uh, important one, I think, is um, just to look at the population of who's being polled. So some pollsters or some polls will look at polls of all adults of Americans, and that'll be things like um, often like Biden's approval rating because we're interested in what all Americans think about how Biden uh, or how they think about Biden. Um, but uh, other polls will be of likely voters in a specific election. And that's kind of the best type of poll when you're trying to use something to predict an election because a lot of adults don't vote. They, they, they can't vote um, they're, or they're not registered or, um, you know, they're just maybe they're registered, but they're more apathetic. Um, and so, and even like, even some election polls will, will poll registered voters and you just have to know, especially this far out from an election, um, really pollsters don't switch over to polling likely voters typically until a few months before the election, um, because it's hard for people to, to know whether they're going to vote or not. Um, but people who are likely voters tend to be more engaged, um, and you know, the results can look different from, um, from the registered voter polls or certainly from the polls of all adults. Um, what other things? Obviously, like it's important to know, I think this was a, um, a, a kind of a big consideration in 2022 um, is that kind of consider like who's sponsoring the poll. Um, some sponsors and even some pollsters are partisan uh, and they may have an incentive to overstate their um, their party's position. And that doesn't necessarily mean that they're making up data, but there are kind of sub some subjective decisions that go into when you conduct a poll, like you can construct a maybe an optimistic turnout environment for your party, for example. So like if you are a Democratic pollster, maybe you're going to assume that like, you know, the like African-American populations turn out at like record numbers or something like that. Um, and that's probably not going to happen. It could. It's reasonable, but um, but it probably isn't going to happen. And maybe that's going to inflate the Democratic vote share a little bit. So, um, you know, and also, you know, like sometimes a campaign will release a poll and like you have to really think about like, okay, why are they releasing this poll? Um, and often it'll be in order to kind of gain an advantage in the race and maybe to argue to donors that they are more viable than they really are. So it's important to treat um, polls like that with skepticism, which isn't to say like, don't believe the polls or don't trust the polls, which is a thing that we hear a lot that we have 538 like fight against their polls are still our best uh, source for predicting elections and also just measuring public opinion in general. But um you know, you do have to think critically about who is conducting it, things like, you know, the margin of error, things like the population that's polled, even things like the dates, right? So, like, sometimes you'll get a poll, um, you know, say it's a week before the election, a new poll comes out, but then you look in the fine print and, oh, actually, this poll was conducted, like, three weeks ago, and it's actually old, and maybe there was a debate in the, in, in the interim and something changed about the race. Um, so, like, you, it's really important to look at the details and not just kind of the top line numbers of the poll. Those are all really good points, especially in our 
our kind of clickbait society where we just grab the first number instead of reading into everything. So really good points there. GOP presidential primary debates have been going on the last few months. There's two more scheduled for January, one right before the Iowa caucuses and one a few days after in New Hampshire. So what are you watching between now and then? Yeah, um, I mean, really, I'm watching Donald Trump's number and his standing like that is the uh, the kind of the be all and end all, right, is that we've had these debates. They haven't featured Donald Trump. You know, they have at times been entertaining. I think they've been helpful for Nikki Haley in particular. Uh, we at 538 um, conduct a regular poll with Washington Post and Ipsos um, after each debate or before and after each debate, um, looking at how voters change their minds. And consistently after each debate, um, Nikki Haley gets among the strongest score. We ask them to like basically grade each candidate about how they did in the debate. Nikki Haley is always one of the top performers. Um, she's also often like gets the biggest jump in terms of people saying they're considering voting for her. Um, and you've seen this in the national polling. So we at 538 have our average of national GOP primary polls and also a few states. Um, but uh, you've seen Nikki Haley go up from, I think it was like 3% nationally before the first debate to she's now in double digits. I think it's like 10 or 11%. Um, and I think that is due to her strong performance in debates. But at the end of the day, right, like it's kind of a race between her and DeSantis to finish second, um, unless something happens with Donald Trump, who is polling up in, in, in like the high 50s. Um, and in some of the early states, he's doing a little bit weaker. So, for example, in Iowa and New Hampshire, he is weaker, but he's still like 20 or 30 points ahead of DeSantis or Haley. Um, and that something about that is going to have to change because if Donald Trump does end up getting even 40 percent of the vote in Iowa and New Hampshire, he's going to win a majority of the delegates there. He's going to have all the momentum. Um yeah, um, kind of on the flip side, like if somebody like DeSantis can pull off an upset in Iowa, if Nikki Haley can pull off an upset in New Hampshire, does that scramble the race and maybe, you know, send like you know, a signal that like, oh, DeSantis or Haley, that's the person that all the rest of us who don't really want Trump uh, need to rally around? Um, or is it just going to be a fluke because those states kind of often go their own way? They tend to take their responsibilities uh, very seriously in terms of being uh, kind of winnowing the field and, and picking candidates. And maybe a lot of those people are like going to rallies and meeting the candidates personally. But in a lot of these like bigger Super Tuesday states, for example, um, like the voters aren't necessarily putting as much thought into their vote. And maybe that redounds to Trump's benefit because he has such high recognition and popularity within the party. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I, I guess I'm watching a lot of things before Iowa and New Hampshire. And how much of these debates are an audition to be Trump's candidate for VP? Because you, you said they're going to likely be runner-ups, but does that mean that they even have a chance for being picked as his vice president? Yeah, that's a great question. So uh, 538 actually published an article about this uh, like a couple of months ago, um, and we actually found that it has become increasingly rare for candidates, winning candidates in the primary, to pick one of their ex-rivals as vice president. Uh, I don't have the numbers in front of me, but it's only happened like a handful of times uh, in the last uh, few decades. Um, so I actually think it's unlikely that any of them will get picked as Trump's vice presidential nominee. Um, not to mention the fact that a lot of the debates have focused on them kind of, you know, they haven't gone after Trump super hard with the exception of Chris Christie, but, you know, they are, they are dinging him. You know, Ron DeSantis has some choice words for Donald Trump sometimes. Nikki Haley, I think, has been, has been pretty critical. And, and uh, Trump has, like, uh, posted on Truth Social after the debates, basically being like, you know, Nikki Haley is so disloyal after she's in my administration and everything. Um, so I think that, you know, 
arguably the better they do in the debates um, by distinguishing themselves. And, uh, you know, like it makes them more of a target for like Trump's wrath. And uh, and that actually probably maybe lowers their chances of being vice president uh, or the vice presidential nominee. I think like the, mo- the easiest one to imagine would be somebody like Tim Scott, who, of course, is no longer in the race, who really didn't rock the boat. And I think maybe that's part of why he didn't uh, get a lot of momentum uh, is that he didn't really stand out. But uh, he's somebody I think maybe an example of somebody who, while he technically ran against Trump, didn't really burn any bridges with Trump. And maybe you could see um, Trump picking him. Although I guess I should also say that Vivek Ramaswamy, who has been pretty explicitly pro-Trump, um, you know, has has certainly not burned his bridges and, and reportedly Trump uh, has been impressed with him. Um, but I think for a variety of reasons, um, he's an unlikely pick as well. Switching sides, can you give us some insight into Biden's polling lately, um, both generally and in some swing states? Yeah, it's been a, a tough stretch for Biden. Um, he actually recently hit his all-time low in terms of his approval rating in 538's polling average, uh, which was like 37%, or maybe it was like 376 uh, which would round up to 38 But it started with a 3 and a 7. Um, but uh, but yeah, he's it's it's been hard for him. Obviously, there have also been a lot of polls for, for people who are, you know, uh, hopefully the people listening to this are not uh, addicted to the internet like I am and following every single poll and, you know, the reality action on Twitter. But uh, um, but there has been a lot of reaction. There have been a lot of bad polls for Biden lately showing Trump beating him in the general election, including in swing states. Um, there were some CNN polls recently um, that showed him like losing big in like Michigan, for example. Um, the thing about that, I think, is it's, it's interesting. There's basically been a debate about like how seriously should we take these polls? Um, and I think that maybe a, a you know to borrow a phrase right the, the best way to think about it is to take them seriously but not literally um so empirically we can look at how accurate polls from like the year before the election are in terms of like predicting the the, the eventual outcome and the answer is like they're basically not predictive like there have been wild swings historically like double digits uh, in the polls between this point in the cycle and then on election day um so really there isn't a lot of reason to think that the polls right now are going to be predictive that said they are you know like i just talked about how accurate polls are in general i think they are valid measures of how the electorate feels right now um, and I think there could be various reasons for that. I think one of the more plausible theories is that uh, a lot of Biden's base is unsatisfied with him and his conduct over the war in Israel, for example. Um, young voters, obviously, in particular, um, are uh, particularly sympathetic to the Palestinian cause in that. Um, young voters, of course, are a key part of the Democratic coalition, and they have given him some pretty bad marks on, on that issue, You know, even though normally you'd expect young voters to be like more approving of Biden, for example, than, than older voters. Um, and so the question, I think, becomes, are those voters saying that they disapprove of Biden or more to the point that are they saying that they would actually vote for Trump over Biden right now? Are they serious about that? Like, would they actually vote that way in a year's time? Um, and I think that's kind of an impossible question to answer, right? There is this phenomenon in polling called expressive responding, which is that like if a pollster picks up the phone and you've just maybe come back from, this is an extreme example, but you've come back from a protest about Biden's Israel policy uh, and they ask you, are you going to vote for Biden or Trump? You might not be inclined to say that you're going to vote for um, Biden, especially at a time, frankly, when Donald Trump hasn't been in the news a lot. We had earlier this year had obviously a bunch of news cycles about his indictments and stuff like that. 
Um, and I think we're going to return to those news cycles when his trials happen. But right now, there hasn't been a lot about Donald Trump. Um, he isn't really rocking the boat. Biden has had a lot of bad headlines. And so maybe those people are going to tell a whole story like, no, like I'm going to vote for Trump. Um, but are they actually going to do that in the thick of an election season when, you know, Trump is, uh, you know, perhaps uh, has has been convicted of something or, you know, Trump is is also being very vocal about his Israel policy, which presumably those voters wouldn't wouldn't like either. Um, so so the question is, sorry, I'm rambling, but no, the question is whether they are um, they're just telling pollsters that as kind of a way to blow off steam or whether they are serious and they would actually vote for Trump. Um, and I think that is unknowable. And I think that certainly if I were the Biden campaign, again, I would be taking those polls seriously, even if they may, maybe not wouldn't be taken literally at this point. But like, it's clearly an issue, like an issue for him. He needs to, I think, you know, shore up those voters, young voters, voters of color also are another group that um, if you compare like how um, like voters of color typically vote for Democrats in, in past elections to the way they are in the polls right now, there's like a lot more black voters and Hispanic voters are saying they're going to vote for, for Trump or for Republicans. And that's just I think it just points to an area that Biden really needs to focus on in the next year for his campaign. And maybe he will succeed in winning them over and maybe he won't. Um, but that is kind of unknowable at this time. Um, so, so yeah, I would say that, um, the early polls aren't necessarily worth freaking out about. Certainly if you are a, uh, a normal, like, you know, like Democrat is just observing things. If you're working for the Biden campaign, then maybe it's something you should take seriously. But uh, otherwise I generally recommend that people don't start paying attention to general election polls until the spring. This might be an impossible question, but I'm going to ask anyways, do you think the election polling or his approval rating give a better picture of his political future? I think in general, the the election polling um, is going to do a better job, certainly as we get closer and closer. You know, there are kind of these broad like, you know, you can look like, you know, yeah, like two years out at the election and look at presidents and how popular they are. And like generally speaking, presidents who are like super popular tend to win like two years before tend to win reelection and presidents who are underwater tend not to. Um Trump being an example of the latter, for example. Um, but there is just a lot of time for those things to change. Um, and more to the point, like certainly in the year of the election, like those head to head polls are actually measuring the thing you're curious about. If you're what you're curious about is whether he's going to win re-election um, because elections, you know, this is a bit of a cliche, but like elections are a choice rather than a referendum. And the approval rating polls are basically the referendum. It's like, do you approve or disapprove of Biden? Um, but it's possible for somebody, obviously, to disapprove of Biden, but maybe to think that Donald Trump is even worse. And in fact, that is the gamble that you know Biden is hoping that those people will, uh, I mean, I guess Biden is hoping that he'll get super popular and you know everybody will like him. But um, perhaps a more realistic scenario is that he's hoping that some of these people who disapprove of him, maybe those young voters, those uh, skeptical voters of color, um, they'll be like, well, I don't really like Biden, but like Donald Trump is worse and I'm going to hold my nose and vote for Biden. And then down, I guess not the middle, but independence. If Robert F. Kennedy Jr. makes it on the ballot in all 50 states as an independent, do you think he'll be spoiling one party more so than the other? Yeah, um, I think there are arguments on both sides, but I think that on net, um, it, he probably will take more voters away from Republicans uh, than from Democrats. Obviously, you know the fact that he used to be a Democrat and he has the Kennedy name you know, suggests that maybe he'll he'll reel in some Democrats who are nostalgic for that, or maybe 
are more to the point aren't as familiar with him, but a lot of his views um, are kind of more uh, congruent with like right wing views and, and frankly, like, you know, a lot of more conspiratorial thoughts like his uh, opposition to vaccines. Um, and that just kind of jibes more with uh, with the Republican side these days. And if you look at polls of his favorability, he's seen a lot more favorably among Republicans than he is among Democrats. Um, and so to the extent he pulls away votes, I think it'd probably be more from the Republican side. That said, I'm generally skeptical. Like he's starting off in a lot of these early polls in like the double digits and like the teens or something like that. Um, and that's certainly like something again to be taken seriously, but but not literally. Um, historically, third party candidates almost always lose ground in the polls as we get closer to the election. Again, people kind of get into campaign mode and they maybe start. You know, it's it's a convenient place again to park your vote for now if you don't like either Biden or Trump. But when it's October 2024 and you're seeing all of them and actually campaigning and you know maybe you learn about some views of rfk that you didn't know about because he was just kind of a, a protest vote for you quote unquote and when you were taking a poll like, the previous year um maybe you come to the realization that like hey like it's going to be either biden or trump i live in a swing state say i live in georgia like i don't want to throw my vote away um so i'm just gonna you know i don't like trump but i like him better than biden so i'm gonna vote for him um yeah. So in general, like, you know, RFK is starting from a pretty high place, um, but I would be pretty surprised if he won more than, say, 5% of the vote in the end. That said, 5% of the vote that in a close election could be enough to to influence the outcome. But um, but yeah, I think it's 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 going to be it's not going to be a Ross Perot situation. Let's move on to uh, this past November's election. You wrote an article that was pretty insightful. Um, I'd like to touch on two major points. Uh, throughout the year, you noted that Democrats have had a stronger showing than most analysts predicted. So what do you think Democrats should make of their successes in both special elections and then this past general election in November? Yeah. So this is a really interesting thing, too, is that we do have this apparent gap between what the polls are saying, especially lately uh, with you know Biden really doing terribly in them and these special elections uh, in which, as you mentioned, if you kind of measure against like a neutral partisan baseline, like, you know, how a district typically votes in like presidential races, for example, or even in, in state legislative races, um, Democrats have consistently through all year long in 2023 been doing better than those partisan baselines. Um, and actually, for this uh, article, I, I used data from Ballotpedia. Um, you guys do a great job of tracking state legislative special elections. Um, so, so thank you thank for you. that. Um, but uh, um, but yeah, but it's been a really interesting phenomenon that Democrats have continued to overperform. And I think it's very easy to say that, like, oh, Democrats are, you know, more energized these days because of the Dobbs decision, or um, they, you know, a lot of, like, basically, like, college-educated white people who tend to be over like tend to they're like the most likely people to go to the polls in like low information elections like special elections they tend to be democrats these days but historically um special election results and specifically overperformance in special elections has correlated pretty well with the eventual outcome of the house popular vote uh in the actual like regularly scheduled even year election um so i don't think we should dismiss them uh out of hand um but it is kind of an interesting um kind of contrast to the polls in terms of the 2023 elections specifically like Virginia and Kentucky um, and things like that. Um, I took a look in this article that you referenced at kind of how um, predicted they've been historically. And basically I found that, so like Kentucky and Mississippi, the governor's elections there, like they really have no bearing. And I think this probably is intuitive to folks, but like 
Um, governor's elections, first of all, are can often be very like localized, um, and it's easy for a governor to have like a specific brand. So obviously, like Andy Bashir, who won re-election in Kentucky, he is seen as a moderate, and he has like a famous last name in Kentucky, and voters there really do distinguish him from the National Democratic Party. Uh, on the flip side, think about somebody like former Governor Charlie Baker in Massachusetts, my my home state, who like. Obviously, was able to win an extremely blue state, but by being like basically resembling not at all the National Republican Party. Um, so those elections didn't really mean very much. I also took a look at um, like Virginia and New Jersey state legislative elections and how predictive they've been historically. Kind of looking in a similar way as the special elections. Like if like a certain party like does consistently better than like the base partisanship um, in those districts, does it mean good things for them in the subsequent election? And I found like. There's a bit of a directional pattern. So like in years where Democrats, although I didn't go back that far, but because um, the data is, is quite difficult to collect. But like, for example, in the 2017 elections in Virginia, Democrats did quite well. And then, of course, they ended up doing well in the 2018 midterms regularly scheduled. But the like exact magnitude was pretty different. Um, so like. I don't think that you can go and look at like the popular vote in Virginia and be like, that's going to be the popular vote in the house. But, uh, but this year you saw like, kind of like, you know, Democrats obviously won the uh, control of both chambers in, in Virginia. Um, but they didn't like overperform by a huge amount. I think actually Republicans slightly overperformed if you're looking at kind of the base partisanship. Um, so basically I think that means like, Anything could happen, like we're in kind of a neutral environment, maybe, uh, which is different from what the special elections say, which, again, is another puzzle. Um, but also just given the, the the variability of that and the special elections, like the special elections aren't a one to one thing either. Like it, it's kind of like polls, frankly, in the margin of error, like, you know, we had maybe Virginia, Virginia elections this year maybe signaled a neutral political environment. But that means that you could have anywhere from a modest Democratic win to a modest Republican win. Like that stat also has a margin of error historically. So um, I'm just not sure that it's telling us much anymore. So like, unfortunately, like, I, you know, I'm a political junkie and I want to know what happens in 2024, too. But like, I think we just have to wait and see. <laughs> Another piece to this puzzle is redistricting. And there's um, a lot of states that may have their maps redrawn before 2024. On December 12th, the New York Supreme Court actually ruled that that state's map must be redrawn by the independent redistricting committee in that state. So how will that affect who controls the House in 2024? Yeah, I mean, these are these are big deals i think um and obviously like they go in different directions so like the new york case that's something that could benefit democrats um you know folks may or may not know but like you know new york democrats originally drew a gerrymander uh after the 2020 census uh, but then it got thrown out in court and a more neutral map was put in place that's the map that was just thrown out on december 12th um democrats are probably so the independent redistricting commission is going to have a chance to redraw um, the map, but um, they might probably have trouble coming to an agreement uh, between kind of all the members on there. And then if that happens, then it gets thrown to the legislature. Um, so I think there is an expectation that the Democrats in the legislature are going to be able to draw that map and will draw maybe not as aggressive a gerrymander as last time because they don't want the map to get thrown out again, but something that benefits them and can maybe net them 
two or three seats. The the final map will be really interesting to see. But then in other states, like in North Carolina being the most prominent example, um, Republicans got the chance to redraw the maps this year um, and drew something that was a a fairly, uh, you know, a a good map for Republicans, kind of a red gerrymander. Um, And they're probably going to net like three seats there in in North Carolina. And then you've also had these cases in Alabama, which has added a new uh, black opportunity seat that will almost certainly elect a Democrat. Louisiana might do the same. Georgia might do the same. Um, so a lot of these things, like it, it, it's really interesting and there are different kind of legal questions at work in, in each case. Some of them are, are about kind of racial gerrymandering and voting rights and some are more just like a question of partisan fairness. Um, but I think that those those are the stories that people should really be covering right now because like these are th- like if you draw a map that has a safely democratic district that like would have voted for Joe Biden by, you know, like, 60 points or something like that like that's basically ironclad like you can take that to the bank you don't need a poll to tell you that that is gonna uh vote be like a game for democrats or whatever um so you know at a time when you know obviously like there was a lot of drama with like the speaker election uh, and like ousting kevin mccarthy and stuff and, and that is an important governing story um but there was also a lot of talk about like you know oh, is this gonna like hurt Republicans chances in 2024 because it's going to show that they like can't govern or can't get their kind of act together but I think that like the actual draw redrawing of maps is going to have a much bigger impact on who wins the house in 2024 than the ousting of Kevin McCarthy and how long it took them to elect a new speaker are there any other storylines like that that may play into 2024 as well maybe like something like no presidential debates yeah um no that's a good point um you know there is that question about whether we're going to have presidential debates i think in general in in general elections debates don't necessarily matter as much or sometimes you can see like a little bit of a bump from them but they tend to fade um so i'm actually not sure how much i don't i'm not sure that would affect things too much um, but that's a great question in terms of other storylines in 2024. I mean, you know, there was a question, you know, I guess there still is a question about um, the economy and whether, um, you know, we're going to go into a recession. It seems like maybe we've achieved the kind of soft landing that the people were hoping for, uh, which I think obviously would be good for Biden. Um, what's interesting is that a lot of traditional economic indicators are looking up right now. Um, like unemployment is, is low, um, you know, like economic growth is strong. Inflation is, you know, like prices are still rising, but at a slower rate than they were, you know, a year or two ago. But Biden doesn't seem to be getting credit for that. But it'll be interesting to see if maybe in a year from now, once like the memories of the inflation in, you know, earlier in his term or maybe have faded a little bit, if, if that gets better for him. Um, or if they're if economists are wrong and it turns out we're not on a soft landing and we do have a recession, I think that would obviously be bad for him. Another storyline, obviously, that um, that I mentioned earlier is Trump's legal issues. Uh, if he gets convicted, um, there are a lot of polls saying that like a majority of Americans flatly would not vote for a convicted felon. Um, it's, I think, a, a, an open question about if, you know, if that comes into conflict with the fact that basically half of Americans like Donald Trump or like, you know, or, or would, would vote for Donald Trump over Biden, um, which of those two impulses would, would, would win out. But, um, but I think obviously that's going to be a, a big storyline uh, in, in the following year. Um, and then maybe another one is just kind of how long the war in Israel lasts or maybe more to the point how much it continues to hang in American headlines. It does seem like it has not been a good story for Biden and has kind of divided his base. Um, is that going to continue throughout 2024? And will it still be an issue in November 2024? I don't know. Um, but I think it's something that Biden would probably like to, to resolve sooner rather than later. 
Yeah, I think those are all good points. Those are all the questions I have for you. So I want to just thank you again for coming on here. For being a political junkie, I feel like this conversation was very accessible for our listeners. So I, I thank you for that. And thanks for using Ballopedia's work. We're always glad to help. Yeah, I know. I'm a big, big fan of you guys. Uh, you know, use it all the time, refer to it, uh, you know, before elections, certainly. Um, the, the wealth of information you have, you have is really remarkable. So keep up the good work. And for our listeners, you can learn more about Nathaniel's work at the link in our show notes. On the ballot, we'll be taking a break until the new year, but we hope you have a wonderful holiday season and make sure you subscribe to the show wherever you listen to podcasts. I'm Victoria Rose, and thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.